I'm grateful for this opportunity to share with you, and anytime I have a context like this to communicate my testimony, I always like to start off referencing Philippians 2.13, where Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's all of our testimonies. (laughs) God has been at work both in us, and he's working not only through our desires, but also getting the things done through us that he has. The greatest need in my life, as is the greatest need in anyone's life, is to be reconciled to God. Even though I was born in a Christian home, had what seemed to be godly parents, I went to a Christian school, I went to church every Sunday, and I was surrounded by people who claimed to be believers, uh, I still needed a Savior. And that was evident to me even at an early age. And it was God's grace that even helped me understand that. I know so many today who are even in their adult years and they refuse to acknowledge their need for the Savior. And so it was some circumstances, though, that God had particularly set in our life or my life that had helped me understand this need for a Savior. Like I said, everyone in my family claimed to be a Christian. Um, But it became evident that everyone was not, uh, particularly my mother. She um, was with us all through childhood, and she had often dropped us off at places and um, was always putting us in some form of child care, even though she didn't really have to work. And we didn't think anything of it. It's not like me and my brother knew any different. Um, But ultimately, I remember the day when my dad came into our room, and we're sitting there in our beds and said, um, we're getting a divorce. Your mother's leaving. She's headed elsewhere. Um, and anyway, we probably won't be seeing her again. So she walked out, and, you know, being a first grader, I have a hard time thinking back to that time, but having a six-year-old in my home now, I I can't imagine how he would respond to that type of news, Um, but I was pretty blown away about it, and it just, something about it didn't seem right, you know. uh, Christians don't do that, at least I thought. And so we were broken, and during that time, God used... Uh, a teacher at the Christian school that I was attending to minister to us very actively. Uh, She was probably in her mid-50s at the time, and she, for some reason, just took a vested interest in our case, and her and her husband began to come over to the house and minister to my dad in this time of need, uh, but also witness to me and my brother. Um, She wanted to make sure that, despite everything that had happened, that we knew the Lord Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. And so I remember she would ask me on a pretty regular basis uh, this question, and you've heard it before. If you die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven, right? That's kind of the classic way that most people uh, present the gospel, at least to children. And I I remember justifying in my own little mind that, well, I go to church every week, and we do Bible stories at night. And, you know, I mean, surely I'm, I'm okay, But her continued emphasis upon Jesus and Jesus alone being the only way that I could have salvation helped me. And it was finally toward the end of this particular week where she had been so persistent in sharing the truth with me that to the best of my ability as a little child, I placed my faith in Christ. You know, I don't don't remember all the details around it, but I did know this. I couldn't save myself and that Jesus had to do it. And the fruit of that would bear itself out in the years to come. Now, growing up in a Christian environment and going to a Christian school, 
Uh, those early childhood years, I never really felt the full weight of my sin. So it was hard for me to really be able to tell if this was genuine or not. I didn't know anything other than I'm going to keep going to church and I'm going to keep reading my Bible and I'm going to keep doing the things they asked me to do at my Christian school. But of course, in teenage years, as uh, you begin to develop a little more of an independent will, um, that was tested. And it was in that time that I really began to see that my faith was genuine, but kind of in a surprising way. Uh, it wasn't because I just lived a stellar and perfect Christian teenage life. It was because I didn't. I, I failed frequently and often, and yet I was so broken over my sin, and I wanted to be reconciled to God. I wanted to make sure everything was right. Whereas the, the other kids in my Christian school didn't care that they were sinning. When I would participate in the things that they were participating in, I, I just felt horrible. And I wanted things to be fixed, and yet I just didn't know how to fix it. Even though I grew up in an environment that clearly preached the gospel, they didn't preach much beyond that that was very helpful for Christian growth. So I didn't really know what it meant to grow as a Christian. All I knew is if I wanted to get things right, I would have to come down to the altar again and rededicate my life to God. And so after doing that about 15 times, I realized, all right, something's got to change. And thankfully, someone came alongside me and showed me the value of just understanding the Word of God and what Christ has already done for me. And understanding that, the implications of a text like Romans 6, which your pastor now has been preaching through in months recent, Help me then begin to see that, oh, I can do this. I can overcome this sin. And so in my later teenage years, I really began to have victory over sin. I really began to uh, enjoy reading the Word of God and benefit from it. I was having fruitful times of prayer. And it was in that particular season that the Lord began to give me a desire to serve Him in even greater capacity. Now let's be clear. Every Christian is supposed to serve the Lord, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's a call for everyone to serve Christ. But I had this desire to, to serve him and make an eternal impact with my life and to do whatever it took uh, to make that eternal impact. And for me, it seemed like the best way to do that would be a full-time Christian ministry of some kind. So what I mean by full-time Christian ministry is like pastoral work or a missionary or something of that nature. And so that desire was there. It was present and it was a conflict for a while. I didn't know if I wanted to do it. My parents weren't all that much into it because uh, they didn't think it was a good career path financially. Um, but ultimately, I decided to pursue that. And I'm so glad I did because even though I was at this little Bible college and I would probably never make any money, that's where I met my wife. <laughs> and that's where the Lord began to establish me and to grow me and to increase my desire to have a ministry focused on preaching and proclaiming Christ. And so from there... Uh, the Lord has been at work, both to will and to do. He's the one that put us in that Bible college. He's the one that then sent me from there to my first uh, associate pastorate where I served for four and a half years uh, back in my hometown and was able to serve with my family for a while. It was while we were there that the Lord gave us two of our children, and then we made the uh, strange and um, risky leap to Los Angeles from North Carolina. That's a big deal, by the way. And, uh, especially when you grow up in the same town and five generations of people live in the same county, even in the same zip code. And to say that you're going to move to Los Angeles, uh, I mean, to southern conservative uh, people, I mean, like, <laughs> they're like, Los Angeles. I mean, you know, they typically think of Los Angeles, all they think of is uh, fires, earthquakes, homosexuality, liberal politics, and 
they just like, why would you do that? And I said, I wanted to go to this school because of their high view of the Word of God. I think if they have the Bible right, we'll get everything else right. And so I want to learn how to handle the Scriptures more faithfully. And so the Lord did that. The Lord enabled us to go. We went to California with $2,000 in the bank and two kids in our laps and had no idea what we were going to do for work. I put in 35 job applications before ever making it to Los Angeles and not, didn't hear back from her one of them. And nobody's really looking for a BA in Bible, by the way. That's just not the degree that you go to try to get a job with. But thankfully, uh, Chick-fil-A valued that, and so they picked me up and made me a manager, even though I had no food experience whatsoever. And the Lord used those first couple of years as a manager at Chick-fil-A to provide for us. And then as we ingrained ourselves into our church family there at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, the Lord blessed our ministry and enabled us to serve on a pastoral level. But in all that time, though, in the last five and a half years, I was preparing for, for more influence and in pastoral ministry. Uh, the desire never went away. I, the preparation was done, and I still wanted to preach. I still wanted to lead. And in God's good providence, uh, he's put me in contact with your elders, and uh, we're praying about the possibility of doing that here. So in the end, you hear a story like that, or you think back to your own story, and you have to get back to where we started. It's God. God's the one who works in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Thank you, Andrew, for leading us. And it's a joy, no matter where you are, uh, to be able to worship with God's people. Maybe you've had that experience before on an airplane. You meet somebody who's a believer, and then all of a sudden, it's like you've known them your entire life. Even in a corporate setting like this, I feel that way. We're focused on Christ today, and honestly, of all the things that we're doing this weekend, um, what we'll be doing in the next 45 minutes is what I feel the most comfortable with, because the focus is on Christ. And so, to do that, I would ask you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 together. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 1. We'll look at verses 15 through 20. Let me read the text for us today. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, it's hard to believe that it's already almost 2016. The time flies. The Christmas decorations are up, and soon they'll be coming back down, and we'll be thinking once again about resolutions for a new year. It's typically this time of year as one comes to an end and another comes to begin. That we think through our priorities. We think through what's important. But before you do that this year, I want to offer you a seemingly insignificant fact. 
that could change your life forever about the very matter of priorities. Did you know, interestingly, that the word priority didn't always mean what it means today? In his best-selling book, Essentialism, uh, Greg McEwen explains the surprising history of the word and how its meaning has shifted over time. And I'll try to show you why this matters. Here it is. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular at that time. You know what I mean. Not plural, singular. And it meant, in the 1400s, the very first or prior thing. And it stayed singular, the word did, for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we, Americans, pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. People in churches routinely try to do just that, do they not? One leader told me of this experience in a church that he was in where they talked about priority number one and priority number two and priority number three, and maybe you've had those in your own life. But what happens when we use this type of terminology is that we give the impression of the many things being priority. What we're actually saying is that nothing is. Priority means that it's first, and I think we make this error more often than we realize. Too often we overcommit, we underdeliver. Maybe you've used this expression of yourself before. You're spread a mile wide and an inch deep. We, we have too many eggs in uh, too many baskets. And clearly this matter of priorities is difficult. And it's an important question for us. Because we need to be able to think through this. Whether it be the beginning of the year or the end of one. What is the priority of our lives? What is the priority of this church? What is the most important thing, being, person, idea in the universe? What's most important in the church, in our families, in our individual lives? Is it a thing? Is it the Bible? Is it our children? Is it our spouse? Is it our job? Is, is, it, a, is it a place? When you think of the most important thing, is it church? Maybe for some it's work, or home, or vacation. Or is it an activity? Maybe personal devotions is most important. Maybe corporate worship is the most important. Family time. I want to challenge you that the, the priority of our lives may be none of these things. Our highest priority is not merely a thing, an idea, an activity but it's a person. In fact, Paul challenged the church at Colossae along these lines as well. Here we are in the book of Colossians, and the whole point of this book is that these believers needed to be rooted in Christ alone. Now, they needed to be rooted in Christ alone is because they were trying to find nourishment and sustenance from other things. Uh, some of them were tempted to be involved in severe acts of self-discipline, and they thought that this would give them the fullest expression of the Christian life that they were looking for. Some of them were looking for legalistic practices and checklists of things to do that somehow might get them 
to where they wanted to be, and they thought that that was the most important. Some highly valued philosophy, and they thought that if they could only have the right philosophy or the right outlook on life, that this would somehow be the end-all, be-all of their existence. And what Paul is writing to tell them is that, no, it's none of these things. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's what the book's about. And to start it off, after he gets past his preliminary remarks and his kind words about him, his praying for them, and even acknowledging what Christ has already done in their life, he, he begins with this very poetic introduction to the book. We don't really see it that much in English, but it's pretty clear in the original language that Paul has now changed the style of things, and he wants us to, to stop and to think. This isn't like the normal part of a letter. It's almost like he's inserted two lyrics of a poem. And what do poems help us do? They help us to stop and meditate, to look, to consider what's really there. And so we have these two stanzas here in which we are going to be thinking intentionally about Christ because of the problems that this church was facing. As one commentator put it, they didn't encourage talking about the, the opposition at the Church of Colossae. They didn't encourage anyone to forget Jesus altogether. They just said he wasn't the only show in town. According to these false teachers, Jesus got equal billing with a vast number of emanating spirits flowing out of God, and they said Jesus could be prominent, but he certainly wasn't preeminent. Can you identify? That's what this is all about. So this morning we're going to see that Christ is indeed first in everything. We're going to look at today the supremacy of the Savior. And as we get into this text, I want to point out from the very beginning that Paul doesn't just say that Christ is supreme. He elaborates upon it by pointing out two specific realms or spheres in which Christ is supreme. So first of all, we're going to look at Christ's supremacy in the realm of creation in verses 15 through 17. And then we're going to see Christ's supremacy in the realm of redemption in verses 18 through 20. And my prayer is that with all of this today, as we view Christ's supremacy, that we would be stirred to prioritize, make him number one, not a number one, but the number one of our lives, of our families, and in our church. We pray with me as we seek to do this this morning? Father, thank you for this opportunity to declare your word. I need your help in doing this very thing. Lord, we need your help in even hearing your word, understanding it, applying it. So I pray that the Spirit would be at work in us today, both as we hear and as the word is applied, so that you would be honored and glorified not only in this hour, but every hour to come. And I ask this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so the two realms in which Christ reigns supreme, the first realm in which Christ reigns supreme is creation. We see that in verses 15 through 17. Look with me at the text again. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, here we see very clearly that Christ, as the God-man, is the most important because everything in the created world was made in reference to him. Now, this is pretty obvious. If you've made something, you're obviously the most important. <laughs> if you're the one that gave it life and existence and sustenance. And so that's basically what Paul is going to prove here in this first stanza of the hymn. 
And for simplicity's sake, I, I like this just to give you some structure to follow. Paul basically says, look, he's supreme because of who he is, and then he'll follow that up with he's supreme because of what he does. Who he is and what he does. And then he'll do the same thing again before moving on to the next stanza. He'll talk about who he is, and then he'll talk about what he does. Let's see who he is. Well, he shows he's supreme in a creation because, first of all, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The word here for image is the Greek word icon. Our English word, icon. And in many cases, it's translated as a statue. So like, for example, in Revelation 13, 14, it refers to a statue of the Antichrist. In Matthew twenty two twenty, 20, it's actually used as an image, like the image of Caesar pressed upon a coin. So the idea is that it's the it's a representation of something. If you didn't know what Caesar looked like, you could look at this coin and see his very image to see what he was like. If you didn't know what a character in history looked like, you could look at this statue and get an idea of what this person was like. And what Paul is communicating here is, look, you don't know what God is like apart from Christ. He is the image. He is the stamp. He is the imprint of the invisible God, the God that you otherwise cannot see. And so he is the most important in all creation because he's the one that perfectly represents him. But notice that he doesn't just call him the image of the invisible God. He then adds this little addition here that helps us and gives us even more clarifying reality. He says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now there's a tough little phrase. <laughs> what does that mean? Cults would have a heyday with this type of thing. Firstborn of all creation, so Jesus was born? I mean, typically when you think of firstborn, what do you think of? The oldest kid, right? So is Jesus the oldest kid of creation? Like, was he the first one born? I thought other people were born before him on December 25th. By the way, December 25th is not when Jesus was born. Well, let me clarify here, because this is a little difficult. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean especially if any of you are coming from a Mormon background or something of that nature, it does not mean that Christ at some point didn't exist and then he came into existence. Okay, Let's be pretty clear on that. The word firstborn here was often used in the Old Testament, as it is being used here, to refer to the special status associated with being the firstborn. How many of you in here are the firstborn in your family? You're the oldest? A few of you? I sympathize. I know what it's like. It's, it's an interesting position. And I know some of you don't like the firstborns. I apologize. I probably just hurt myself in, in claiming that. But I will say that it's, it's kind of, not in this culture as much, but you could see it in times past especially. It seems like the firstborn does receive some type of special favoritism. I am the, uh, the firstborn grandchild as well, and my grandmother will unequivocally state that I am her favorite. <laughs> and it... it, it it just burns the other grandkids up. There's just something about being the first. And I revel in it. But you know what? It <laughs> <laughs> if, if this is so today in our culture of equality, it was even more so in the Old Testament culture in which they lived. Uh, in which they lived all through the, the four millennia before Paul ever wrote this. I mean, if you just think about it in Genesis 49.3, the firstborn received special authority. In Deuteronomy 21, 15 and following, you see that the firstborn received a double inheritance. I know as Americans were thinking, that's not fair, that's not fair, but let's just deal with it. That's how it was. 
And so typically, the firstborn, the literal firstborn, would actually get some special favor, some special privileges. But the idea of receiving the special favor and privilege began to be used more broadly. So the term firstborn didn't only mean the person physically first, but it meant the favored one. It meant the prominent one. It meant the most important one. And lest you think I'm making that up, there's probably 150 uses of this in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this very word, that point to this very fact. Let me just tell you about two of them. In Exodus 4.22, Israel is called the firstborn over the Edomites. But Israel wasn't born first, if you think back to your Old Testament history. Jacob was his original name, right? He was the secondborn. And yet he's called the firstborn because he was the most prominent. He was the one that received the blessing. In a similar way, in Psalm 89, 27, uh, the coming Messiah, and at this point referenced by David, but ultimately Jesus Christ himself, was called the firstborn. But we know that King David was not the firstborn. He was the lastborn. And yet he's called the firstborn because he held the prominent role. He wasn't even the first king. He was the second king. And yet he was the favored one. So what I'm trying to show you is that this word firstborn is not unusual at all. It's actually pretty common for it not just to mean physically firstborn, but to mean the prominence or status associated with something. So here we have Jesus being described as the firstborn of all creation. What do we mean by that? He is the prominent one. He is the most important one. He is the favored one. He entered into the created world, and he is the most important person that's ever existed in it. And so he's saying, like, this is why he's supreme. He was the only one to come in and do what Adam couldn't do. Notice the imagery there. The image of God wasn't Adam created to be the image of God, but he messed that up. And what did Jesus do? He came in and he fixed it. Adam wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't the favorite. He couldn't do it. Jesus did it. And so, therefore, he is supreme. He is first. We couldn't do it. He did, and therefore, he deserves praise, honor, glory, and, our key word today, priority. So he's the most important person by virtue of who he is. He's the perfect image of God. He's the prominent figure of God. And now Paul is going to back up these claims with conduct that proves this to be true. So it's not just his character, who he is, but it's also his conduct, what he did. What has he done? Look at your verse again. Right in the middle. For by him all things were created. Why is he the most important? Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And let me stop there. I want to point out a feature that may help you in your Bible reading in the future. When you see two contrasting terms like this, visible and invisible, heaven and on earth, it's a poetic device called mirrorism. We use it even today in our normal speaking as Westerners. We would say things like, um, from the east to the west. Or from A to Z, right? What we mean, we're we're talking about everything in between. When you see this, he's not just talking about physically spatial heaven and then geographically earth. He's talking about everything that you could possibly imagine. Whether it be visible or invisible. Whether it be something in heaven or something on earth. And everything in between, he is supreme over that. He created it. And then he gets even more specific. Look at your text again and says, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities. Now, if you ever want to get derailed in your Bible study time and chase a rabbit, go start researching that. Because there is a lot of debate. What, is it? what are thrones and dominions and rulers or authorities? What did the Colossians understand? Well, the Colossians primarily had in view 
probably the unseen powers and authorities of the universe. You know, just being influenced by the paganism of their day, they thought the supernatural evil forces were at work and it was their job to manipulate their, those forces for their good. Um, they thought about demonic forces, cosmic powers, the gods, uh, the pagan religions, magic even, they thought was part of this. They also had visible things in view. I mean, when you think of thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, well, you can think of physical thrones, right? Caesar, dominions, those political rulers who ruled in his stead, authorities. You're talking about police, soldiers, authority structures of some kind that you can see on this earth, oppressive systems that enslaved or tyrannized human beings. They were in fear of those as well. And what Paul is pointing out is that Christ is over those things. Now, for us today, we're not worried about Caesar, and most of us aren't superstitious in any way or thinking about invisible forces zipping through the air, making us do things we don't want to do. But we do think in the same terms. Today, people think of unseen things like luck, fate, nature, biology, You've heard of biological determinism, the idea that I was born with certain genes and therefore I can't control my behavior because I was born this way. People think, you know, we're, we're out of control. We can't do what we want to do. And what Paul is reminding us is that no matter what you think of, that you could actually not see. Whatever invisible forces you may have in your mind, Christ is over those things. He created those. And even the seen things, especially for us in an election year. It's important for us to remember that God is even over the authorities that will rule our country, state and government. Christ is the ruler over the international powers, over economic structures, even corrupt authorities in a particular location. Christ rules over that. Nothing is out of his sphere of influence and control. And just in case you needed to know more, just in case you weren't sold on the fact yet that he is the priority, he adds in the next line, all things were created. You can see this at the last part of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Think about that. Who are we talking about here? Are we talking about God the Father? No. Specifically, we're referring to Jesus Christ, and I want you to think with me for a moment. Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-man, here is described to have been the agent who created all things and the one for whom all things were created. The second person of the Trinity was involved in creation. John 1.3 tells us this. Hebrews 1.2, which we've already read this morning, declares this for us as well. It happened through him. It wasn't just a cosmic force up in the sky. It wasn't just some intelligent, benevolent being. It was Jesus Christ himself that created the known world, and he created it for himself. And the case continues with this transitional line in verse 17. Notice who he is again. He is before all things. Uh, this could mean that he is pre-existent and that he existed before all things, but in light of the context, it just means he is the most important of all things. He is of most importance. He's at the front of the line, the top of the list. He's the king of the hill. Whatever analogy you want to use, this is what it, that is communicating. And then, again, he mentions what he does. He shows that he is supreme in creation by saying this, and in him all things hold together. So he says he didn't just create it all, but he sustains it all. He didn't just get it going, but he keeps it going. You get what I'm saying? 
I love that term, all things hold together. We, we use this a lot. We, we talk about something standing together or something coming to be in a condition of coherence, continuing, existing. You know, we, we don't use this word very often, but we use this opposite, like everything fell apart. You ever say that about somebody's life? It just all fell apart. Or you had a plan, and it just all fell apart. It, it ceased to exist. And what he's saying, look, he's the one that keeps things from falling apart. He's the one that holds them all together. He not only made them, but he maintains them. And because of that, he is excellent, he is priority, he is first. Now, science increasingly will show us that Christ created and sustained the world. Even in my research this past week, I was reminded of the fact that our planet is approximately 93 million miles away from the sun, and you know the statistics, right? If we were any closer, what would happen? It would burn up. If we were any farther away, what would happen? We would freeze. I mean, even the, the tilt of the earth at 23.5 degrees is something that gives us four seasons a year, and if it tilted at any other angle, we would have a massive continent of ice, and yet it's Christ holding it all in place, keeping it all going. One of my favorite hymns growing up is uh, This Is My Father's World. Actually, it was uh, me and Tanya, when we were moving out to California, created a little soundtrack of hymns that we thought we would need to sustain us and encourage us through that trying time. I mean, again, money, kids, job, you know, all that stuff. And This Is My Father's World was one of our hymns. And I love it. I love the reminder that's there. And yet, as I think back on that, in light of this text, I think too often that we think of creation as something exclusively conducted and maintained by the Father. And we think of Jesus as like this a, a redemptive agent, and he is. But Jesus was involved at the beginning. He's a creative agent, and this is why he's the greatest. And so I would encourage you to maybe next time you sing through that song to change the words. Let me just do the first stanza for you to give you an idea of what's there. Instead of saying, this is my Father's world, you could sing, this is my Savior's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Savior's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. Doesn't that change your perspective on Christ? Doesn't it elevate Him in your mind just a little more where you begin to understand that He was even involved at that level? I've always appreciated Abraham Kuyper's essay, Sphere Sovereignty, in which he wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ says mine. Not Mother Nature. Not a political party. Not fate, not world powers, not government authorities, not mystical spirits, not our genetic predispositions or demonic spirits. Christ says mine. And this should impact our priorities. The Colossians felt like they were at the, the mercy of these higher powers, these invisible forces. They thought they were slaves of fate and circumstance. And Paul uses this text to show them that all they tangibly needed to exist and to thrive was Jesus Christ himself. He is first. He's worthy of their allegiance. And even though I don't know 
as an outsider, what's going on in your particular world, I can say with authority that we all, whoever you are, must acknowledge that everything happens in our lives because the world was created in reference to him. He made it. He's first in it. We must acknowledge that everything that happens in our lives or in this world was made possible through him, as hard as that is to say, because he sustains it. And we must acknowledge that everything that happens in our lives or in this world is directed to him, and somehow he's going to orchestrate it for his honor and glory, and therefore he deserves to be at the top of our list. So why be consumed with anything else or anyone else? Why does anything else even begin to compete? As if the case hasn't been made clear enough, there's a second stanza. So far, we've been reminded that Christ is supreme in the realm of creation. And this truth is so vast, it's so sweeping, it's so broad. And yet Paul goes on farther. He, he doesn't just stop with creation. He also wants us to understand that Christ's supremacy also extends to the world of redemption. Not just creation, but redemption. The world of salvation, what we could call the church. Christ is supreme in the realm of salvation. Look at verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Or if you have the NAS, it says to have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the blood of his cross. So he's the priority of the redemptive realm. What, what, what do I mean by that? We don't normally speak in terms of the redemptive realm. You, you can think of the realm of creation, but what is the realm of redemption? We're talking about anything that needs salvation. So we understand the created world as God set it forth, but then we realize that a lot of stuff got messed up. And it needs rescuing. So anything that has been rescued or can be rescued, Christ is sovereign over that as well. Do you understand? Paul will, will elaborate and help us understand it even more. Notice what he says here. He kind of starts off with who he is. He says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the enabler, the head. And you know, understand the analogy, right? I, this is what I love about biblical illustrations. You just can't beat them. I mean, when you think of a head, you know what a head does. If you cut the head off of something, it doesn't exist. It doesn't function anymore. And in a similar way, what he's saying here is, look, Christ is the head of the church. He is the authority of the church. He's the governing member of that body. He is that which controls it and that which gives it life and sustenance, a direction. So in the body metaphor here, what he's highlighting, he says Christ is the head of the church or the body. He's talking about, look, we all derive our salvific existence. The, the only reason we have any relationship with Christ whatsoever, the only reason we're on good terms with God, all of that came from Him, His headship. Because we've been connected to Him, divine life flows, flows through us, and we otherwise would not have had it. There is nothing that we can do apart from His choosing to make us a part of His body. He has made us a part of the body. He is the head. He is most important because of that. Not only that, but he adds, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's not just the enabler, but he's also the initiator. When you think of the beginning, I mean, the literal definition of beginning is the one with whom, or the, 
thing with which things begin. So what is this here? He's saying that Christ is the authority figure who initiates an activity or a process. Uh, some, some translations have put it this way. He's the first principle. He's the source. He's the creative initiative. Of what? When I say that he is the beginning, the beginning of what? Well, look at the text. It clarifies. He is the beginning of what? Well, it adds, the firstborn from the dead. So just in case you didn't know what he means by the beginning, he then adds the next phrase right behind it, the firstborn from the dead. Now, remember our word firstborn, right? Think with me. Did, uh, was Jesus the first person to ever come back to life? Then why in the world is Paul talking about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead? Remember, firstborn, is that a matter of chronology or priority? In this context, it's priority, right? Didn't we just establish that back there? So now that we have that there, we can see here, he's not talking about Jesus being the first person to ever be raised from the dead. I mean, Jesus, before he was ever raised from the dead, raised people from the dead. But he was the most important to be raised from the dead. And why is that? Do we just arbitrarily say, okay, yeah, his was the most important. No, the reason why his was the most important because his was the only one that would affect the resurrection of other people. When other people came back to life through God's power, it didn't have any effect on anyone else. Other people still died. And yet when Jesus came, it made it possible for those who were in him and who would follow him to come back to life as well. So he is the most important in the redemptive realm because he is the one who has conquered death, not just for himself, but for all those who would ever follow him. And that makes him first. For more on that, you could look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. One author described it this way, he is the founder of the new order of the resurrection. He started a movement, and that movement is this rebellion against death, and we're a part of it. He's included us in that club. Why? Why has he done this? Why, is, why does it matter that he is the firstborn from the dead? Why does it matter that he's the beginning? Why does it matter that he's the head of the church? Look at the purpose statement that follows in the text. That in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. Why did Christ initiate this redemptive work? Why didn't he just say, you know, I created it, I rule over it, but we know we're just going to let everything just go to pot because it sinned, it rebelled, and you know what, I'm just going to exercise divine wrath. Why did he enter in and try to redeem things? That, Paul says, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be first. Why did he pay death to give life to a world that deserved to die? Because this is a way that he could receive more glory, more preeminence. He entered into the fallen, rebellious order so as to prove that even sin could not thwart his sovereign rule. How did he do this? How did he become the head, the beginning? What makes him first in all of this? What gives him the right to be the redeemer par excellence over all mankind? Well, it says in verse 19 that it's because that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell or permanently reside, depending on how you want to translate that word. The fullness of God. Basically, he's communicating here when he talks about fullness. It says in some translations, fullness. In some translations, fullness of God. 
And one of the things that you should probably know about these Colossians is that they were pretty obsessed with this idea of fullness. If there was a Christian bookstore in that time, it would have advertised books for the fuller Christian life. <laughs> they really liked this idea of spiritual fulfillment. And so Paul is actually borrowing from their very problem and he communicates to them, look, no, 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 you don't need anything else for fullness. Christ is the fullness. And actually in chapter 2, verse 10, he's going to say, He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God is, Christ is, and He has it all, and that's why He has the right to do the fixing. That's why He can do the redeeming. Because He's God. The God-man is God, therefore He has the right to fix things. And then He adds, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, what does it mean to reconcile to Himself all things? Typically, when we think of reconciliation, we think of people. So some people have tried to translate this to say, oh, well, look, this means everybody's going to be saved in the end. He reconciles to himself all things. It doesn't say that he reconciles to himself all people. Let's read the text. It says he reconciles to himself all things. The term reconciliation doesn't always have to do with people. Have you ever reconciled your checkbook? You're fixing it. You're making sure that it's balanced. You're getting it to where it needs to be. The term reconciliation implies that something's been broken and that it's damaged and that it needs to be repaired or brought back into one. And so what we know here theologically is that the world is messed up. Oh shoot, you don't even need to know theology, you just can look around and tell things are messed up. Just watch the news. That's why I don't watch the news, by the way. Because I'm always reminded of how messed up things are, but guess what? I think we all know the answer to this question, why are they so messed up? What, what brought all this on in the first place? Sin. Sin. So we need someone to fix the sin. And so Christ, therefore, is the reconciler of all things because he's the one that can remedy sin. It started with man's sin, and Christ will remedy man's sin, and ultimately that salvation that extends to mankind in this age will extend to the entire created realm in the age to come, and therefore Christ is the reconciler of all things. He will fix it all. Sin messed it all up, Jesus fixes it all, and then he further clarifies that he made peace, or he is making peace by the blood of his cross. You need to know this curse just wasn't some cosmic accident. This is the exercise of the wrath of God upon mankind for his sin and rebellion against him, and Jesus was the only one who could pacify that wrath. How many times as a kid did I hear someone say, well, the reason why you need to receive Christ is because you have this whole God-shaped hole in your life, and you won't be happy until you get to know him. But that may be true that we only find our ultimate fulfillment in him, but we cannot neglect the reality that we were his enemies. He hated us for our sin, and he needed by divine justice to exercise that wrath, and he still did, yet Christ was the one who stepped in and absorbed it for us. It isn't as just God just blindly said, you know what, I think I'm going to overlook that one. No, because of our sin, Christ endured that penalty, and because of that, we have peace. Therefore, in anything, anything revolving redemption, anything involving reconciliation to God, anything referring to a reversal of the curse on mankind, Christ is inarguably first. It happened and will happen because of Him. Salvation, sanctification, the redemption of a fallen world, reconciliation of God to man, anything that you can think of that needs saving, Christ is first in it. 
This is beautifully illustrated in John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to read that. I would encourage you to. It's probably one of my, in my top five books of all time that's impacted my life. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the work, it's, a, it's an allegory. And it tells this story of a, of a man named Christian. And he's on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, heaven. And so Bunyan uses this real, I mean, this imaginary story to illustrate spiritual truth. And so Christian is on his way out of the city of destruction. He's seeking salvation, and he's got this heavy burden on his back, and it's the guilt of sin. And so he wants nothing more than to get rid of this burden so he can make his way to celestial city. And what happens is he, he finally makes it through some obstacles, and he, and he crosses what's called the wicket gate. Now, when he gets past the wicket gate, he's now beginning to make his journey, and, and he thinks that this was like kind of the moment of salvation for him, but he's frustrated, though, because the burden of sin is still on his back. He entered in the narrow way, he thought. He was following the way, the truth, the life. I mean, he did exactly what he thought he needed to do, and yet he's still weighed down by this burden. And something interesting happens. He goes up the fence highway, He's doing so with great difficulty because of all the stuff on his back. Until he comes to a place where he looked up and he saw a cross, and a little below it he sees a tomb. And as soon as Christian beheld this, his burden, this, this, this sin burden that was on his back, fell off, and it rolled down the hill into the tomb and it disappeared. And it's just a beautiful thing. His burden was gone. And then, I'm quoting Bunyan here, Christian exclaims, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. We thank him for the cross, but the focus is on the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. That's where redemption and reconciliation took place. And it's because of this that he is supreme in every facet of salvation what does this mean for us why do i share this with you why is it so important that we understand not only his supremacy in creation but also his supremacy and redemption what are we supposed to do with this well first i would say that this is for the sinner if you're here today and you still know the weight of that sin upon your back and you've tried to contribute to its release and your own salvation in any other way, shape, or form than exclusive dependence upon Christ and Christ alone, you have no hope. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 make it so clear that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of works. Must any man should boast? And the verse that nobody ever quotes but probably should, verse 10, for, why did he do this? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Why did all this happen? Why does he save us by grace through faith? Why must he be the exclusive agent of salvation? Because he deserves all the glory. 
You can't contribute to your salvation because it's not about you, it's about Him. And that's why we're reminded today that He's the greatest figure even in our redemption. He's first. He deserves to be first. So if you would receive Him, He must be first. He is the only one who can save you. But I would also say that this not only is for the sinner, but I think that this is a helpful encouragement for the saint. Maybe you're like me. In my teenage years, remember I told my testimony a few moments ago, in which I knew nothing more than to just keep trying my best and doing all this kind of ritual to try to get closer and closer to Jesus, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me spiritually. Multiple trips to the altar call, I mean, to the altar, I mean, all, all kinds of rich, you know, maybe if I read my Bible every day, that that would all of a sudden fix the problem. And yet, I think we need to be reminded that our every spiritual need is still met in Christ beyond salvation. So, there's salvation in which we receive Christ, but then there's sanctification in which we begin to reflect Christ. And true believers have this desire, and we want to do it, and we want to grow, and we want to be more like Him. And you know what you need? You don't need a new Bible reading plan. You don't need to give more money to the church. You don't need to go rededicate yourself or take some life experience trip to a foreign country. What you need is Jesus. Do you need direction? He's the head. Are you scared to die? He provides life. Do you feel incomplete? He is sufficient. Are you frustrated by a sin-cursed world? He will reconcile it. Do you lack peace with God? He secured peace through His blood. He's the end of it all. He's the answer. Now, I, I say this as encouragement, but I also would mention it as a challenge. If it all comes from Him, redemptively, and it all is for Him, He has done all this that He might be what? First, in everything. Now, in everything. But does in everything include what we do? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, does everything include in what we think? Yeah, I, I think it does. Does everything include how I raise my kids, how I work in my job, how I spend my retirement? Yeah, I think it does. He did this so that, not just he would make your life more convenient, so that he would be first in everything. Don't let anyone or anything else dominate your thinking, your planning, your confidence, your satisfaction. It all comes from Him. You say, Justin, I don't struggle with that. No, I think, I think we do. I think we do more than we realize. Because I grew up in a world where there was this division of people, and it was like, okay, well, if you go into ministry, well, Jesus is supposed to be first. But since I'm not in the ministry, therefore Jesus doesn't have to be first in my life. I want you to understand that doesn't matter if you stand up here or you sit down there. We all are to have Christ at the top of our priority list. It is just as important for me to seek Christ first in considering a pastorate as it is for you to seek Christ first in considering your next job. What would be best for Christ in His name? And I think it's not just a reminder for us individually, but I think it does good for a church in a time like this to embrace this corporately and not just individually. So what do you mean by that? We need to embrace, whether it's your church here or my church back in Los Angeles, that the church is His. Do you remember everything pertaining to salvation is His? The church is His. So like I come from a church with a pretty well-known pastor. It's not John MacArthur's church. It's Jesus' church. This isn't Ken Davies' church. 
It will not be Justin Harris's church or whoever you decide to choose as a pastor. This is Jesus Christ's church. He is supposed to be first in it, and therefore we need to make sure that church services serve Christ, not visitors. We need to worship and work for Christ through the week, not just ourselves or our bank accounts. We need to give to Him, we need to serve Him, we need to attend for Him, we need to witness for Him. It is all about Christ and a church. So in all initiatives and future strategies for a local church, he is not a priority, he is the priority. What would give the most honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? I was vividly reminded of the supremacy of the Savior a few months ago when I was reading A.W. Tozer's convicting little article, The Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. And again, I realize that some of you maybe have never heard of Tozer before, but um, just a mighty man of God used greatly uh, in the last century and really helped bring revival to a lot of churches. I mentioned two books already this morning. Uh, well, I mentioned the first being Pilgrim's Progress, but the second that is on the top of my list of books that have influenced me is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, particularly the first four pages of the book. And I'm not even going to tell you what they are because I want you to read it. But I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you this background information because I want you to know that I'm not just quoting some random preacher down the street. This is a, a well-known leader. And what I need you to know also before I read you this little selection is that he wrote this two days before he died. So this was on his heart as he analyzed the church situation that he knew. And, and this is what he had to say. I think you'll appreciate these penetrating lines. He says, let me state the cause of my burden. It is this. Jesus Christ today almost has no authority at all among the groups that call themselves by his name. Now the article continues, and he, he starts talking about churches like this one. He separates them from, you know, Roman Catholic churches or Mormon He talks about conservative, Protestant, evangelical churches just like this one. And then he continues, Christ has little or no authority, and his influence also is becoming less and less. I would not say that he has none, only that it is small and diminishing. A fair parallel would be the influence of Abraham Lincoln over the American people. Honest Abe is still the idol of the country. The likeness of his kind, rugged face, so homely that it is beautiful, appears everywhere. It's easy to grow misty-eyed over him. Children are brought up on stories of his love and his honesty and his humility. But after we have gotten control over our tender emotions, what have we left? No more than a good example which has, it recedes into the past, becomes more and more unreal and exercises less and less real influence. The lordship of Jesus Christ is not quite forgotten among Christians, but it has been relegated to the hymnal where all responsibility toward it may be comfortably discharged in a glow of pleasant religious emotion. Or it is taught as a theory in the classroom and it is rarely applied to practical living. The idea that the man Christ Jesus has absolute and final authority over the whole church and over all its members in every detail of their lives is simply not now accepted as true by the rank and file of evangelical Christians. Close quote. Wow. Convicting. You know, as I reflect over this text, I can't help but remember a line that I came across in my teenage years. And I saw it on a, on a guy's t-shirt when I was leaving a basketball game, and it's, it stuck with me. And it, it's a pretty arrogant shirt, but it says this, 
Second place is first loser. Second place is first loser. You know, this is why I keep saying that Christ is the priority and not a priority. I really want to be tender in how I say this. I'm not trying to be shocking in any way, shape, or form. But we, the redeemed Christian, we must be careful not to treat him, as bad as this may sound, as first loser. If he's at near the top of your priority list, that's not good enough. He is the priority, not a priority. Why does he deserve this priority? The text made it clear. He rules over the creative world. He made it all. He sustains it all. And also, he rules over the redemptive world. He's the head of it. He's its source. And everything that can be redeemed happens through him. And so what does it look like when we grasp this truth? Christ is first. Christ is first in our schedule. Christ is first in our relationships, in our parenting, in our career, in our ministry, in our spending, in our retirement, in our life, and in our death. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine the impact that that would have even on this community and around the world if you had literally scores to hundreds of people who were all dedicated in every facet of their life thinking, okay, what would give the most prominence and honor and glory to Christ? I mean, not just individuals. I'm talking like corporately. Like as, as you disperse and people were like, now, why did you make that? That was a dumb move. No, this was for Christ. We decided to live here because we thought we could impact people for Christ. We decided to participate in this because we thought we could impact people for Christ. We decided to invest this because we thought that it could impact people for Christ. Christ was at the top of our list. That's what Paul wants for the church of Colossae. And that's what I pray for you. He's not a priority. He's the priority bow in prayer together. Father, I ask that you would use this truth to bring everyone here into further alignment with your purposes for our life. I don't just pray this for us as individuals. I pray this for us as families. I ask that you would do this in this local church or in other churches that even may be represented here today. And don't just do it now. Don't just do it today. But I pray that this would be true in the remainder of this year, in the years to come, and in all eternity. You are first. And we praise you as such. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.